It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Really appreciate you joining us here on our podcast. This week is episode 160. It's part two of Dr. Baraki and I's question and answer session from a recent two-day seminar at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California, plus some highlights from my most recent Instagram Live Q&A. If you're not a Q&A fan, this is not the podcast for you, but honestly, there's so much information here about health, strength conditioning, coaching, uh, sport, etc. that I feel like if you're into the barbell medicine content, you're going to be into this podcast, but uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, some announcements before we hop into this week's podcast. Our week of wellness ends today. So it started last week uh, for the holiday. If you're in the United States, it was Thanksgiving. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Mine was great. Thank you for asking. Uh, today is the last day of our sales and our whole site is on sale. So if you spend $350, you get $100 off. If you spend $250, you get $50 off anything in the site. Uh, use codes BBM100 and BBM50 respectively at checkout to get the discount on your gains. Speaking of, we just dropped three brand new templates. The first one is the one I'm most excited about, but it's the low fatigue strength template. So this template integrates the latest exercise science with real world coaching results from thousands of individuals that we've coached over the years. Uh, and it's in a completely customizable format. So you get four unique 16 week strength conditioning templates uh, that meets nearly anyone's needs. Um, also that's included is an 80 page ebook discussing programming theory and design, how to troubleshoot plateaus, how to measure and manage progress and much more. There's a nutrition section, a supplementation section. Uh, basically, if you're looking for our programming text, this is it. I'm super happy with how it came out and really looking forward to you guys checking it out and giving me your feedback. Uh, the second template that we dropped is the super total template. So this combines a powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting into a single program based on uh, my work with individuals who competed in both powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting at the same time. Uh, basically you get 16 weeks of customized programming spread into three different blocks, comes with a 40 plus page ebook discussing the ins and outs of the program, how to progress with it and much more. It's really cool if you're interested in combining those two disciplines and you want to test your 1RMs at the end or uh, otherwise improve your maximal strength in both powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting. And the third and final template is the Powerbuilding 3 template. This is the next iteration of combining powerlifting and bodybuilding to a single program. It contains 14 weeks of programming spread into three different blocks. Powerbuilding 3 has a completely customizable exercise selection designed to give the user total control of what lifts they're doing. The program's volume and intensity are also adaptable to match the user's current fitness levels and training tolerance on a given day. Uh, also included is a peaking phase for those wanting to test their one rep maxes at the end. And there are some other cool features uh, with respect to fatigue management that are in this program that are not in the Power Building 2 or Power Building 1 programs as those are suited for less trained individuals. So if you've previously ran any of our Power Building templates and you're looking for the next iteration, this is it. Really excited for these three templates to drop and they're on our website and you can get those through the link in the description below. All right, that's enough stalling. Let's hop into this week's podcast. All right, what, if any, changes would you make to the physical activity guidelines and why? Oh, uh, actually, we just, or I just discussed this on the latest podcast with uh, Dr. Hazel Wallace, because uh, I used to like not like the physical activity guidelines so much. I was like, oh, it's very cardio heavy and light on resistance training, blah, blah, blah. I don't feel that way anymore. I actually think they're fine. And I like the scientific consensus statement. 
I think the biggest problem with the physical activity guidelines is that I don't know who they're written for. Seriously, I don't know who they're written for. I don't know if they're written for the a health professional, right? Because if so, like, you don't need the the flowery language of like the regular handout. You could just see the scientific consensus report. And at that point, what you're then missing is how to actually communicate this with patients in a way <laughs> that increases uptake of the behavioral change because that's not in there at all. There's nothing in there about counseling patients, right? Uh, and if it's written for the gen pop, it's like, okay, so where are the sample programs? Seriously, like where are the sample programs? Where's the program builder? Where's the, where's the referral system to a local exercise professional in your area or places to exercise? None of that's there. And I'm not trying to, like, look, these people get some amount of money. I don't pretend that it's enough or that I even know, and I'm not, I'm not involved in making these recommendations, so I can't possibly speak to all the barriers placed upon them in coming up with these guidelines. But my biggest issue with them right now is the uptake is so low that there has to be something else either included in these guidelines or done in addition to these guidelines to increase the uptake. And that's the same thing I would take about the, the dietary guidelines. I'm not sure who they're written for, and I think there needs to be either a change in the way they're communicated, written, get, you know, delivered, or something to make the uptake higher. But the guidelines themselves, the nuts and bolts of it, is fine. There just needs to be something else there to increase uptake. And if they need barbell medicine to consult on like program design, like that's cool, I'm available. <laughs> We're available. Sure. Right. I have and nothing to add. Nothing? No. How often should unilateral training be added to programming? I mean, you want to make it this up or you want me to make it up? Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. I it's mean, made up. There's, yeah, there's no like, you know, real evidence-based answer. You could, you know, talk about some of the different studies investigating uh, leg strength asymmetries in certain sporting injuries, particularly in like soccer, or football, some other uh, running-based sports, but it'd be really hard to generalize that to the public. Uh, my thought is that why wouldn't you have it in there? If our goal for most trainees, general strength conditioning sort of purposes is to build this broad base of physical development and you're not doing anything unilateral, well, I feel like that's a hole in your game. I'm not saying is, you know, if you're getting ready for a powerlifting meet that you should still have, you know, unilateral training in there, but it should have been in there at some point, probably, to, you know, make you well-rounded as an athlete. And if you hate doing it, suggest that you're not great at it, maybe that should signifies that you should spend a little bit of time on it. So find something that you will do or that a client will do, program it in there a little bit. Um, usually better for higher repetitions. I see people doing like Hatfield split squats with like 500 plus pounds for doubles. And I'm like, why? Yeah, I, I think I'll do that. Well, there's other ways to train, you know, single legs strength at high, at, with high force production than like slamming your knee into the ground, you know, with a 500 pound safety squat bar on there. But people do that all the time mm. and live to tell the tale which goes to show you, like, you could probably handle more than, more than you think, potentially. Uh, how often is it in your programming? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's mandatory for people in general, but I like uh, our, our, one of our coaches, Derek, uh, Derek Miles, one of our rehab guys. He likes to tell people that they should become athletes, general athletes, before they become a specific kind of athlete. I like that idea, right? And so, you know, when I mentioned earlier during the pain lecture about the individual who I had who could deadlift 700 plus and then got destroyed by some body weight lateral lunges. Yeah, could afford to develop some more general athleticism. Let's put it that way, <laughs> okay? Uh, so I think that it's reasonable to include for that purpose. I agree, maybe you know, when you're getting hyper-specific just before competition or something, it may drop out. I use unilateral stuff 
all the time in the rehab context uh, because it's a super easy way to force people to limit the loads when they will not limit the loads. <laughs> they will not listen to me um, because doing a single leg RDL, right, uh, is tricky. I know the first time they do it, they're going to be embarrassed because they're like, I can't even balance to do this thing, right? And it is going to inherently limit the load. And so I use those as just one example, nothing magic about them. I don't want the entire, you know, YouTube audience goes, oh, now I have to go do single leg RDLs, right? But it's a common example or single leg glute bridges or something like that in a rehab context for somebody with low back pain or hip pain or something like that. It's a way to move in a different way than they're used to moving in a way that inherently limits loading. I use it for that purpose a lot. And then, yeah, this kind of like general movement competency, general athleticism kind of thing, rather than being somebody who is highly trained and competitive in only three ways of moving, a squat, a bench press, and a deadlift, which uh, not ideal, would not recommend. No. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. We went over a lot of pain examples with isolated pain incidents, like a tweak, falling off a swing, etc. I'd hazard a guess that a lot of pain in weight training comes from long-term nagging pain in certain areas like knees or shoulders. What are recommended strategies for thinking about and handling this type of pain? Uh, well, I would, I would challenge that uh, supposition, um, although obviously this depends how you define injury, but when this has like been studied, injury risk in resistance training, uh, particularly in competitive, uh, like weightlifting, powerlifting, stuff like that, most of the injuries that occur, then they must occur with pain for most of these definitions uh, for them to qualify as, a, as an injury, uh, last less than 14 days. Last less than 14 days and spontaneous and then resolve. Uh, if you're talking about common areas, yeah, sure, low back, knees, shoulders, etc. As far as how I would think about them, most injuries related to resistance training seem to be non-catastrophic, resolve relatively quickly, and although they happen somewhat Commonly throughout the course of a career, it's still a relatively low risk of injury compared to other non-contact sports. So if we're comparing like, well, would it be better to do resistance training or like, you know. Play soccer. Play soccer. It's like safer rather, right? From an injury standpoint. You're like, well, resistance training by far, in addition to all these other benefits of resistance training that soccer can't possibly offer. Although there are unique benefits to soccer. If you like playing soccer, go for it. Sure, yeah. Go for it. But just understand, like, if if you're willing to drive a car... You should be, from a risk standpoint, you should be willing to maybe do resistance training. Um, But I wouldn't, I don't know that I have a great answer for like thinking about the type of pain associated with resistance training that's unique because it's just. Yeah, my answer to this is you think about it and handle it the same way. Remember how I talked about acute pain and chronic pain as somewhat arbitrary things? We suddenly say, oh, it's been around for more than three months. Now it's chronic, right? That's made up. It's pain. The person is experiencing pain. And just because it has been lasting a little bit longer doesn't mean you necessarily need to think about it radically differently outside of the fact that to the extent that there may have been any sort of tissue injury, it's probably healed by then, which is one, you know, optimistic thing. That's good news by that point. (laughs) That's good, yeah. Right? Everything else that I said during that lecture still applies, and the way we handle it is similarly. When I have an individual who's experiencing persisting low back pain or hip pain or knee pain, trying to find out what are their goals, What are their preferences? What are their abilities? What are their limitations? I.e., what do they want to accomplish and what are they able to do right now? Where can we start, find that entry point to physical activity, right? And come up with a plan that will progress them towards where they want to be over not a specific time frame. In other words, I'm not telling them, oh, we'll do this and we'll get you better in six weeks. I can't predict that. Anybody who does predict that is a quack, 
You cannot predict red these flag. things, right? That's red flag. That's red flag. Bro. There you go. All right. Right. I'm often increasing exercise and movement variation in general. I'm increasing movement frequency in general, getting people moving more and in different ways more often. And I'm often decreasing absolute loading, right? Those are probably the most common strategies that I might, that I might use. Somebody who is obsessed with low bar squat, conventional deadlift, strict bench press, whatever the case is, Maybe I am pulling those movements out entirely at first and doing completely different things. I'm adding unilateral stuff. Sometimes they object. They say, this is just a waste of time. It's like, well, why did you come and consult with me? Sounds like you felt like you were not getting where you wanted to be on your own. Here's my recommendation. Let's try it. Give it a chance, right? So oftentimes the approach involves less training monotony, i.e. more variation, may need to pull back on loading in the early phase and progress it and be open to the fact that there are going to be ebbs and flows, ups and downs, flare-ups and improvements. And if the trend overall is in the direction we want, right, and there are various metrics of success, perhaps pain goes down. That's the most preferable for most people. But perhaps I can do more with the same amount of discomfort. That's also a win, right? There are various ways that we can do this in order to get people those wins that I was talking about. Sometimes I'm just playing mind games with people, trying to get them to recognize, hey, this was better than before. It may be a completely arbitrary outcome, but hey, people thrive on that kind of stuff. So that's what we're doing. Yeah, nothing unique. What communication strategies do you implement with a patient who has been told many different rationales from many different medical providers and is frustrated slash does not trust the medical system? That's a great question. Uh, I, I think rather than approaching it like you're telling them something, is more like an asking them additional questions, trying to get them to participate more in their kind of management. So, for example, asking what would be the goal, like what's, what do you want to get out of this visit today, for example, or how can I help you, or how do you think I can help? Um, what do you think's worked in the past? Why do you think these things didn't work in the past? Um, and then what do you view the next step as? Try to get like some sort of foot in to them leading you on something they've described or selected or preferred. Uh, mainly because every other person apparently has told them something and then given them some advice and apparently it has not worked. And so I think repeating that process probably sets, sets you up for, for failure. So uh, I actually had an in- interaction like this on social media where this person had like, multiple, uh, they had low back pain, multiple sort of repeat like imaging from different professionals and been told all this sort of stuff. They came across our, uh, some of our, our low back pain stuff on YouTube and then messaged me mm-hmm. and they were like, what do you recommend I do? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure what I can do from here via Instagram DMs, kind of limited here, but what would you want to come from this interaction? You know, like I just want some exercises that you think would be safe for me to do because I'm not sure if it's safe for me to do any exercise. I'm like, well, what are you doing now? Like, I haven't exercised in months. I'm like, okay, well, what exercise do you want to do? The same thing I kind of uh, uh, talked about when we were talking about Bob's exercise selection. Um, And so that was pretty much a lob to me, right? This person had been months removed from sort of acute pain. They were really looking for, like, a green light and some reassurance on, like, exercises that were safe and that they could tolerate. And, yeah, it was very easy for me to kind of do that. Obviously, this can get significantly harder if someone's actively in a ton of pain, very resistant to the idea of exercising, moving, doing anything differently than what they've currently been doing or anything that you potentially have to offer. So starting at the beginning with like, what's the 
your ideal outcome or what do you want from this visit is like a great place to start because at that point you're kind of like, well, I'm not sure that, you know, I have much for you in that realm. Is there anything else or any other way that you think I could help you or benefit you? I have had lots of experiences with patients in this situation. And I would say overwhelmingly the uh, best communication strategy that I have used with them is typically to communicate less. Just listen, 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 listen. I do very little talking oftentimes in initial consultations with patients, uh, particularly of this variety. Sometimes it is through barbell medicine-based consults where I have the luxury of a lot of time. If I were in a clinic with 15 minutes, the system is not designed to help this person, unfortunately. Wish it was, I have no solution to that, no answer to that. When I'm in a situation where I have this luxury of time, and that might be a situation where it takes multiple visits, and every time you just listen for 15 minutes or something, maybe that's the best you can do. When I'm in a situation where I have the time, which is most of my practice, whether in a hospital or outside, I have time. I'm not on a strict schedule. It is just listening and trying to relate to this person as a human, right? Being a good human sitting alongside this other human who is suffering, right? Which is, uh, seems, I don't know, <laughs> easier said than done, but you know, being real with people and recognizing the suffering they're going through and listening to them is the first step to actually establish rapport. There are so many times where I've done this and they say, you are the first person who has actually listened to my experience or what I had to say. And that was just because I said, hey, tell me what's been going on. And then I shut up for like a long time. Even if there's awkward pauses, I let them fill in the awkward pauses. Just some cues. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go. Keep going. Right? That's the idea. Because if they are coming to you for recommendations, right, they've gotten recommendations before that have gotten them nowhere. That's why they have no trust in the system. So they're coming in probably with little optimism that you will be able to help this person. So no recommendation that you give them is going to be especially useful or productive unless, they, unless you have their trust first. And that's how you get their trust first, right? Get their confidence that you have listened to them, you, you are empathizing with them, you uh, understand to the extent that you can as an external observer what their experience has been and what they're trying to accomplish and laying out a shared, mutually agreeable plan, right, that they are on board with uh, to get to where they wanna be. Done this a whole bunch of times with folks. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, right? Just like I said in the pain lecture, I'm not perfect. I've not fixed every human that I have ever interacted with, right? Uh, it is a very tough process. Sometimes I'm not the right person for somebody to be talking to. Just, I don't know, maybe something about me, something about my face, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but a lot of the time, uh, just that initial step of listening and letting people tell me about who they are, what they've been through, what they want to accomplish, what their frustrations have been, and recognizing, yeah, that really sucks. I would feel the same way. I would feel frustrated if that had happened to me. And then to the extent that I can, drip in little nuggets of maybe my medical assessment of, you know, maybe somebody told them this thing and I said, I probably wouldn't have, you know, gone that route or done that thing or something. And that was also just ways to get a little bit more trust that, hey, I'm, I'm kind of on your side here. I'm, I'm with you, that that didn't make a ton of sense. And, you know, that was a waste of time. I might have a better idea for you, something like that. Various ways to, to play this. Obviously, human social interaction, real complicated. I'm not an expert in it. I'm not a trained therapist. But doing this probably thousands plus of times at this point in, in various contexts, you get better at, at listening to people and, and relating to people. So that's kind of what you have to do. All right. Jordan. Oh, that's me. 
spoke of factors relating to the causes of obesity. What about big food companies and their role in the obesity epidemic, like McDonald's, Coke, and Nestle? Uh, I should say for legal reasons that the following answer has nothing to do with McDonald's, Coke, or Nestle, <laughs> or any other specific food entity. Uh, but if you're asking, like, uh, are the current policies relating to food and food environments and zoning and, yeah, amount of fast food restaurants in particular areas, if that contributes to the obesity epidemic, the answer is yes. Resounding yes. I do not think it will be possible for us to even make a dent in the obesity epidemic without policy change with respect to who's getting subsidies for producing certain types of food, uh, food uh, locations in various communities. All that stuff's going to have to be changed. Maybe not a lot, but some. And so, yeah, uh, I don't know that the companies are to blame because there's got to be some government uh, input there and we technically voted people into office and so do we blame ourselves or do we point the finger elsewhere? Yeah, I don't know. I agree. Uh, we, I would have said the same thing. We will not get out of the obesity epidemic without policy change and that involves some role of government intervention. Um, this is going to invite very hostile YouTube comments. Hey, you know what? I do not care. <laughs> Mightn't it be that, you know, somebody's, an individual's lived experience is different from another individual's lived experience? Yes. This is when you have a myopic view of human existence that does not deviate from your own experience, that other people have different experiences, different genetic lots in life, different environments in which they exist, live, and interact. And so, fully agree, there is no path out of this uh, 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 without some role of policy change. Uh, yeah. That's just the way it is. Do you think that for-profit medicine has interfered with the public's sense of self-efficacy and how capable individuals are to self-manage minor problems like non-specific pain, minor injuries, or common non-life-threatening illnesses, i.e. the common cold, etc.? Oh boy. What the f Why are you doing this to me? We've done you like don't even 25 read the comments. seminars. You don't even read the, the comments. The easy stuff is gone now. You don't, even read the, <laughs> you don't even read the comments. This is true. I don't read the comments. Uh, well, my thought is like there are places with socialized medicine that still have the same, you know, sort of issues that we have. And so I don't know if it's just the for-profit, the for-profit medicine, you know, <laughs> cabal that, that is causing all this stuff because even when, when medicine is, is subsidized uh, for all, like, they're still having lower, uh, relatively low self-efficacy in some individuals. I, I think there are larger systemic problems leading to low levels of self-efficacy across the board that also happens to rear its ugly head in healthcare-related issues. So, yeah, I don't think I agree that I don't think this is actually an issue with the for-profit side of the healthcare system. I work in a not-for-profit uh, side of the healthcare system, and I see the same you know, types of issues among my patient population. Although I will say that they are better managed because they are in effectively a socialized medicine type system. This is the military healthcare system. Um, that things are, they have access, things are paid for, things like that. So outcomes in general are better, unsurprisingly. Uh, but the profit versus not-for-profit aspect is not really the thing that I think is um, most heavily impacting this self-efficacy 
issue uh, when it comes to many of these issues. I think that the, it, the, that issue arises way more from just social human interactions and our learned responses to various things, people talking with one another and learning what you should what you should expect from the healthcare system in response to a given thing, what should be done for something. When you have back pain, oh, you should go do this thing or have this thing done to you. When you have a cold, you should do this or have this thing done to you. This is all stuff that we teach each other. This is just social uh, interaction and learning as well as the social interaction from clinician, healthcare professional who is in this position of authority who can say something that is like very authoritative to an individual um, that can heavily impact their self-efficacy and what they should do with uh, whatever situation they're in. So I actually don't think the for-profit aspect is the problem here, although for-profit medicine should not be a thing. Ooh, Jesus. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) All right, last question. I have friends and loved ones who start and stop exercising. Thoughts on what they can do to best stay after it instead of continually falling off the wagon over and over. I mean, uh, recidivism and exercise or other behavioral changes is not uncommon. We expect that when we talk about the trans-theoretical model of behavioral change, we expect relapse. And wherever people jump back in, um, kind of meet them where they're at, help them see them through. Uh, as far as why it happens, I think that's going to be unique to the individual and probably getting some insight into that, what the person thinks is you know, causing them to, to stop, whether they identify it as like, oh, during periods where I'm really busy at work or busy with my family or traveling or whatever and I get off out of my routine, etc. It's like it's not so much about making people less busy or having less time committed to family, but how do you make your routine more adaptable or malleable, for example? Or how do you... Uh, maybe you have somebody work out at home, for example, so they're you know, still in a quote-unquote routine. It's one solution to one potential problem. Um, if people are saying that they're not getting results or if they don't really like the exercise that they're doing, I mean, when you think about the predictors of people like maintaining adherence to an exercise program, enjoyment tends to be like the number one thing. And then obviously having a big strong social inter- uh, connection, social interactions um, is, is pretty high up there as well. So uh, trying to leverage social support, whether it's people exercising in a group, exercising with friends, um, and making sure that they're enjoying the thing uh, and getting kind of what they feel like they deserve out of the, the training. I think all of those things are important, but this is pretty individualized as far as like what you do when somebody is, quote unquote, you know, relapsing and then hopping back in. So I would kind of try to get their input on that before I rattled off some suggestions. Yeah, for those who are watching this or listening to this in video or podcast form, just like rewind like five minutes to when I was talking about having a conversation with people and just listening to them, <laughs> seeing what they're about, what their issues are, what the barriers are, what's going on, what do they think, what happens, tends to happen around these episodes, and listen and empathize and come up with a shared plan. That's really what I would do. There's no one answer for this because people, this will happen uh, in people's situations for varying reasons. So get at it. Boom. We did it. All right. right. Thank you so much. Instagram Live, what's going on? It's Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum with Barbell Medicine. It is the 28th of November, Sunday, about 5 p.m., and uh, I'm going to spend the next hour or so with y'all doing a live question and answer. So if you've never joined me for a question and answer session, you guys just ask questions. I try to provide answers to the best of my ability, and we just hang out. Let's go to your questions. Please tell folks there's no ideal or good body weight for a man. Oh, yeah. So there's this thought that's been perpetuated, particularly in the strength uh, 
you know, kind of industry that an adult male has to weigh 200 pounds or something like that or some other arbitrary number. And it's like, you don't have to weigh anything. You can weigh whatever you want. Um, as far as what's health promoting, that's going to have to do more with body composition, how much body fat you have. And then um, there's also good evidence that if your BMI is greater than 30, regardless of your body composition, um, you know, even if you're carrying a lot of muscle mass, for example, you're also likely still carrying a lot of fat mass. Obviously, there are people with BMIs greater than 30 who are also very lean, um, although then you start wondering about polypharmacy. Um, and, you know, obviously there are exceptions to every rule. But in general, if your BMI is greater than 30, you could probably benefit from weight loss from a health trajectory standpoint. Um, as far as what weight you're going to have the ideal performance, it doesn't look like as you get heavier, your performance necessarily improves relative to your cohort because all barbell sports are have weight classes. Um, so, and then, you know, yes, if you carry more lean body mass, we predict that you're going to lift more weight, but that's not always the case. It's more complex. And I'm sick of people telling other folks to gain weight in order to get stronger when the real linchpin in getting stronger is the programming. So if your programming is great and uh, you could benefit from carrying more lean body mass to lift more weight, hey, that's great. But let's make sure that you're not putting yourself at risk for some sort of, um, you know, negative health outcome. So if your waist circumference, for example, is approaching those cut points where we know body composition is um, not great. So for a guy, we're talking about 37 inches for, a, for a woman, we're talking about 31 and a half inches. Um, and those are for your, you know, people of European descent. Um, there's like an ethnic, uh, sort of difference, uh, people with different bone structures. And so there's some, some variation there, but in any case, if you're getting close to those waist circumferences then I'm thinking, Hey, your body composition portends a, not a great health outcome because you're carrying too much fat mass, particularly particularly abdominal uh, fat mass or visceral fat mass. So those people would probably not be great candidates to gain weight. If your waist circumference is far under that and your BMI is under 30 and you want to gain weight, um, sure, go for it. it may improve your performance if your programming is on point. If your programming is not great, it's probably not. And uh, yeah, then you, again, your P ratio, as we call it, partitioning ratio. So how much muscle do you gain relative to fat? It's probably not going to be great if your programming is not, not great, but that has more to do with genetics anyway than your starting level of leanness and uh, even some of the other stuff that goes into that, mostly genetically driven. So anyway, kind of rambled on in there, a little tangent, but uh, that's my thought here. All right, Pam Greshock, love your stuff. Thank you. Question, best tip for building muscles for 40-year-old women, retired bodybuilder, and I need some muscle back. Aging is a real thing. Well, that is true. The time of, uh, the march of time goes on, uh, and chronology is a, is a real thing. That said, the actual evidence on different fitness adaptations uh, with respect to different aged populations suggests that Older individuals do not gain any less muscle mass or strength or cardiorespiratory fitness than their younger cohorts when we look at relative amount of gain, meaning that I would not expect you as a 40-year-old woman to gain any less relative amount of muscle mass or strength compared to an 18-year-old man. Uh, boy? Man? Well, you know what I'm saying. And that's been shown over and over and over and over again. Um, effectively, there are larger inter-individual variations in genetics and other uh, epigenetic components that really drive the magnitude of fitness adaptations, strength, hypertrophy, cardiorespiratory fitness, that uh, 
largely overshadow any sort of uh, uh, you know, sex differences that there may be, and we can't detect those sex differences reliably. Is it true that on average men are stronger than women? Uh, yes, that is true, um, but that isn't in an absolute sense, and that is because in general, if you take two, uh, a man and a woman who weigh the same, the man will generally carry more lean body mass. Now, that is not always the case, and there are definitely women who weigh the same as men who carry the same or even more lean body mass than the man. And in that case, we would predict the women, the woman to be stronger. The muscles of women are not defective. They are not less strong, less capable, less explosive, like high velocity force production or power production. It's the same. You would not be able to discern them under a microscope unless it's a very high powered microscope and you could see uh, you know, indications of a second X chromosome in some of the cellular material, but nobody's looking at that. Uh, so if I took a biopsy of your leg and a biopsy of my leg and stained them with hematoxin, hematoxylin and eosin and put them under a microscope, we would not be able to tell the difference. If we checked out their contractile potential in isolation, there would be no difference. If we looked at the ATP content, the creatine con content, et cetera, there'd likely be no difference. I just happen to have more lean body mass for now. But uh, again, there are no sex differences in fitness adaptations after a given training program, um, no age-related differences in uh, fitness adaptations after a given program, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, you don't need special programming. Um, effectively, you just need to be empowered to uh, do the damn thing. And uh, we have tons of material on our website. So, all right, what does the updates, what does the updated power building program include? So it's not an updated power building program. We came up with three new templates yesterday. We have low fatigue strength template that comes with an 80 page ebook on like how to program. So even if you don't need a new template to run, but you wanna learn how to program, that would be our go-to text. Uh, we also have the power building three template and super total template. So the power building three template, again, is a hybrid between bodybuilding and powerlifting. It's got custom exercise selection, has dynamic sort of volume and intensity variables based on your uh, fitness and readiness to train on a given uh, given day. A um, lot of interesting elements with respect to um, fatigue management. So it's completely unique compared to the previous two. And I think if you've ran either one of our power building templates before and you want to run another iteration, a more advanced uh, template, you know, that would be it. What is included in the low fatigue programming guide? Like, is it just about low fatigue uh, or your whole methodology behind programming in general? It's the whole shebang. We talk about what programming is, what are the goals of programming, what are the fundamentals of programming, the fitness fatigue model, progressive loading, all the exercise variables and how they pertain to strength development and why the template is designed how it is. Um, will there be an additional programming text at some point in the future where it's expanded? Yes, but this is 80 pages of me telling you exactly how I program and why. And with it's heavily cited as well. Um, so in my mind, if you were looking for a program resource on how to program, I, I, this is what I would go with. Uh, obviously, I'm biased because I wrote it. Uh, Austin was heavily involved in the editing process. And uh, this is similar to our programming lecture, although it comes heavily from a view of let's get as strong as possible. How would you program for this? Um, rather than just health promotion uh, or health promotion, hypertrophy, strength and cardiorespiratory fitness development. But uh, so it's focused on strength development. So if you're thinking about programming for strength development, yes, this would be it. To what degree do you think the perception expectation of fatigue following an exercise affects the actual amount of fatigue? 
So the perception of fatigue is very tightly correlated to the experienced fatigue. That's why RPE is a validated scale, RIR is a validated scale, heart rate change in some contexts is validated to uh, uh, for um, measuring the external load, which is the training stress. Uh, expectation is one of the individual characteristics that modifies the training stimulus to drive the training stress. So if we summarize this, the training stimulus is the nuts and bolts of the program, right? Also known as the external load, weight, reps, sets, volume, intensity, rest periods, exercise selection, all that stuff. Okay. That gets applied to the individual. The individual has all these unique characteristics, Right, so genetics, training history, current fitness levels, expectations, mood, nutritional status, sleep, etc., and then the output of that is the experienced training load, which we call training stress, and that can be measured by RPE, can be measured by RIR, can be measured by rating of fatigue, uh, all of those things, and then that uh, drives two processes: fitness adaptations and fatigue. And fatigue is the subjective experience of the negative physiological and psychological uh, sequelae or consequences of training. And fitness adaptations are usually the objective uh, positive psychological and physiological sequelae or consequences of training. And the relationship, the balance, the ratio between fitness uh, and fatigue uh, yields performance potential. And so you have given performance potential on a given day in a given environment, and then there you have performance. Best gym exercise to transfer to road cycling for power, squat, deadlift, leg extension, lunge, what do? Yeah, probably the squat, just as far as the mimicking the joint angles. Uh, as far as power though, if you're talking about like wattage, you're gonna wanna do heavy, slow resistance training and high velocity stuff. But I, I don't know that I would just do one exercise. I would kind of cover all your bases because it's all just, general physical preparedness for cycling. So I would squat, I would deadlift, I would trap bar deadlift, I would lunge, I would do box step ups, uh, and I would periodize the program over time. I would do upper body stuff too. Um, yeah, and make sure it's auto-regulated depending on how much volume you're putting on the bike. There you go. What happens to the nutrition book? Oh man, editing like, whoa. I am hoping for a Christmas release. That is my, that is my stretch goal. So it's just... Yeah, it's a bigger project. It's like writing a medicine book, right? So think about all the nutrition books out there right now outside of like actual textbooks. So let's take all the textbooks. We're out, not talking about them anymore, but we're talking about all of the nutrition books published by random people, people with education, uh, formal education, and people without formal education. Uh, that th This is not a book that one person should tackle. It's just not. It's like writing a book on medicine, which would be an encyclopedia or multiple series um, there's just so much and you would have, you know, 10 authors, people who are experts in metabolism, people who are experts in different macronutrients metabolism, people who are ex you know, experts in public health, sports nutrition, it's at all these like sort of fields. The idea that one person is an expert in all of these things. Mm. It's like when people argue against guidelines, like, like clinical practice guidelines, and particularly ones that have robust evidence. It's like, do you know how many hundreds of people are authors on these clinical practice guideline papers and how many papers you would have to read as an individual to even have a formal opinion on the topic. And, and then you would have to check your bias for all of your interpretations of those things. Like collectively, that's why we need hundreds of people to come up with the clinical practice guideline. And one person can't just be like, nah, well, I disagree. It's like, mm, do you though? 
about to graduate from bodybuilding one to bodybuilding two template, should you change the main exercises or keep them the same? It's completely up to you, does not matter. My personal preference is for people to develop a broad base of development, to develop a broad base of physical skills that, that, that can be applied later on. And I want them to develop this broad base of physical skills which a bunch of, with a bunch of different exercises and a wide variety of different rep ranges, different bioenergetic sort of demands, etc. So I see no reason to keep the main lifts the same unless you prefer them. If you prefer them and that's what's keeping you adherent to the exercise program, like carry on. Uh, but if not, change them. Yeah. All right. Could you comment on the relationship between range of motion and hypertrophy potential for a given exercise? Yeah. In general, greater range of motion increases hypertrophy potential up to a point. Seems to be like a hypertrophy cap at a given session. So it's like, do all of your exercises need to be like the longest range of motion in order to like keep driving hypertrophy up and up and up and up? Not necessarily. And there's evidence that... <clears throat> Uh, there's some evidence showing that a partial range of motion yields the same hypertrophy as full range of motion, but I think overall the totality of the evidence suggests a longer range of motion with a slightly reduced speed eccentric and fast concentric tends to drive the most hypertrophy gains. But again, the, the data is not exactly perfect here, so I don't have a lot of confidence in those findings. Um, I think what's more important is that the exercise hits the muscle group that you're trying to hit, um, can get you somewhere near failure, pretty close to failure, and is not that fatiguing, so you can do a lot of training volume with it. And then adherence. I mean, maybe adherence probably before all of that, and then you tack on the nutritional you know, environment that makes it ripe for gains. Um, those things will all be much more important than like range of motion, in my opinion. I broke my leg badly when I was young and had a full leg cast. Now when I squat to align my hips, my feet must be slightly different angles. Do you see this as a problem long-term? No, everybody's asymmetrical. Nobody's legs are the same length. They're the, there's a leg length discrepancy in over 90% of the population. Nobody's hips are in the same you know, rotational position. Nobody's arms are the same length, all sorts of stuff. So I would not expect your toes to be the exact same angle. I see no problem with this. And I also don't know that your leg, your, the history of a broken leg has any impact here. Do you have any worry that Dr. Baraki is coming for your deadlift max? I don't, because uh, I hope that he breaks it. And then I'll break that, and then we'll just keep going back and forth. I'm I'm cool with people being getting stronger uh, than me, but you know, I'm not I, I I'm not worried about it. I'd be pumped if he did it. Yeah, it's just like ask Austin if he's worried that you know that I was going to squat more than him. He'd be like, no, I hope he does. And then when I did, he was like the first one to congratulate me. So, how important are hypertrophy blocks or volume accumulation phases? Well, they're not the same thing. Uh, so I'll say that. How important are hypertrophy blocks for increasing hypertrophy? Pretty important. How important are they for increasing strength? Eh, I don't necessarily know if I think they're that important because most strength, good strength programs have enough volume by default that they will produce hypertrophy. Uh, volume accumulation phases, pretty important for strength. So hopefully that answers your question. Evidence behind rep ranges. There are no, there's no evidence behind any one rep range being superior to another for all adaptations. Rather, each rep scheme has unique adaptations that you'd want all of them if you were training 
for an individual uh, for training an individual without a specific sort of training goal. And an untrained person should not have a specific training goal from a performance standpoint because they are untrained at that time. Let's see. How strong is the relationship between high specificity training and injury risk? Yeah, it looks like it's reasonably strong. It just depends how you're looking at it. Like short phases of hyper-specific training tend not to promote injuries, but we're talking about long hyper-specialization or even hyper-specialization early on in life. And then as it goes over time, it's, yeah, pretty strong. Increases injury risk quite readily. Yep, also reduces motor learning, motor skill development, general athleticism, stuff like that. How different is strength two and three compared to strength one? Very different. Volume's different, intensity's different, exercise selection's different, training frequency's different. The, there are no similarities between the three templates. Yeah. Uh, if you just wanna repeat strength one, if you're getting good gains, that's fine with me. If you wanna train more and train differently, I would, I would go, I would move on. Yeah. Let's see. Is it fine to use the double progression scheme on the main lifts? Uh, so that would be increasing the rep count and the weight simultaneously. You can, if you want. I don't know that you can do that and maintain exertion levels, so RPE in this case, or reps in reserve. And as you change the rep scheme, you're changing the adaptations you're selecting for. So it, not be, it would not be my preferred method, but can you use that? Sure, but you'll notice the absence of that progression in all of our templates, except for the at-home template where loading becomes a problem and you'll have to like have some flexibility in how you progress and progressively load the exercise. Yeah. Uh, let's see, could you elaborate and give an example of how progressive loading may be better than progressive overloading? Yep, I did a whole podcast on this, a YouTube video on this, uh, but you know, happy to do it again. So progressive loading is actually the thought process behind progressive loading or progressive overloading as it's written in effectively every textbook for training. The whole thing is you're supposed to uh, match the training stimulus to the current fitness and performance levels of the individual to drive fitness adaptations. And that training stimulus will have to increase over time as the person's fitness improves over time. So if the person's fitness levels have not improved, you're not increasing the training stimulus. If you increase the training stimulus without the person's fitness levels have improved, that's a mismatch. That's a mismatch and you're generating too much fatigue or the person cannot complete the task. And that's not, you can't force the adaptations to happen. The adaptations happen and then you increase the load. That's how you increase the load and maintain a similar level of exertion. So the RPE should stay the same session to session. The session should feel about the same level of hardness as you go along. It's like the Greg LeMond quote. Uh, it doesn't get easier, you just go faster. So it doesn't get easier, you just get stronger. Um, so you, you cannot force the adaptations to happen by increasing the stimulus without the concomitant previously occurring, actually, that's a better way to say it, fitness adaptation. So the person has to get stronger before you add weight. The person. Um, you know, has to improve cardiorespiratory fitness before you increase the pace. If you increase the pace or increase the weight and the person hasn't gotten stronger, hasn't improved their cardiorespiratory fitness, you're overstressing them. It's a mismatch. Worse results. Greater fatigue, not that much better, or, or maybe even in some cases worse fitness adaptations. 
All right, that's a wrap on episode 160. Again, that was part two of our Q&A from our most recent two-day seminar at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California, plus some IG Live questions that I just answered uh, yesterday. So if you want to check out part one, I've linked that in the description below. Before you go anywhere, though, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. This week, I'm recording some more podcasts with Dr. Baraki. We've got a bunch of cool topics and pods coming out. So really excited to share that with you. And uh, we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you later.